Welcome to Bench Boost, presented by Ivy Ignite, Inorganic Ventures Virtual ICP Academy. I'm your host, Mike Booth, Technical Director here at Inorganic Ventures. At Ivy, we're passionate about all things ICP, sample prep, and analytical science. And we're here to share our passion and expertise with you. Each week, we'll bring you the latest insights, tips, and tricks from the brilliant minds of our laboratory team. Get ready to experience chemistry in a new light. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined by one of our R&D chemists, Autumn Phillips, one of our production managers, Thomas Kozakowski, and our chief technical officer, Dr. Brian Alexander. Today, we're going to continue with a deep dive into one of our most popular resources, our ICP Operations Guide, written by our founder, Dr. Paul Gaines. Make sure to tune in each week for more insights from this guide. Today, our team will be discussing Chapter 7 on Linearity and Detection Limits. If you would like to follow along with us, you can view the ICP Operations Guide on our website at www.inorganicventures.com. So let's start it off. Um, Paul mentioned, you know, detection limits and how the instrument, when you purchase it, will come with what the instrument manufacturer says the detection limits should be. Brian, what are your thoughts on how accurate those numbers are and how long those values are can remain accurate? Yeah, that's a, a great question, Mike. I think that the data are trustworthy, but in the context of the second part of your question, which is really how long are they trustworthy? The experiences that I've had is have been that these detection limits basically are going to be fundamentally based upon what you did that day. And so if you have a brand new instrument and you obtain a bunch of detection limits, or if you have the detection limits provided by the manufacturer, I think you can achieve those, but they really represent the ideal situation when the machine is operating at peak performance. And for many of the users of ICP instruments, you'll find that as you run lots of samples or if you move to different sample types or as time goes by, you're going to move further and further away from those ideal detection limits. And so I think that the data are trustworthy, but you really need to continually evaluate those detection limits and make sure that they are appropriate. My own experience has been that I would try to use some type of assessment of detection limits that was more based upon the method I was following for a given day or the sample types. And so they would change. And I think really it's that second part of your question, which which is most relevant. The detection limits that you observe today are unlikely to be the same detection limits that you're going to see tomorrow or in the coming weeks or months. And I know just the, the intro system components can play a huge part of that. I know, Autumn, you've done a project recently on that and just how important you know, nebulizer and spray chamber styles are. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, definitely. So like Brian was saying, the detection limits are really method specific and can also be dependent upon the intro system that you're using. So if you're using a higher sample throughput intro system, you're going to get better detection limits usually because you can see more of what's in your sample. So it's really dependent on your exact setup and what you're running, what's in your samples, concentrations, matrices, dilution factors, everything goes into that. So it's really going to be specific to what you're running in your lab. Yeah, exactly. And Thomas, I mean, you designed the main method that we use to test all of our custom products. What was your thought process when you were evaluating that method for you know, detection limits and, and linearity? Yeah, as far as linearity, we tried to go beyond what we expected and tried to assess where does it go out of range. So, I mean, we've got a trace metals method that we only go to one ppm on, so we know that's linear the whole way. You go outside of that range, it starts to get a little weird, and we try to confirm by standard additions, and sometimes it's okay, and sometimes it's not. It's very element-specific and also line-specific. 
So you do have to pay attention to that. With our trace metals on the mass spec, yeah, same thing. Got to go as low as possible. So it's linear for that low range. And as you get higher, you start getting some signal quenching, matrix effects. We're not using internal standards, so it's a bigger problem for us than a lot of other people in the, in the world. Definitely. Yeah, that's one of those things. It's always hard to determine the correct detection limit because it's always going to change based on your sample type. A part of this chapter, Paul gave some advice on how to determine your detection limit. And he basically ran through, you know, these are good recommendations. These are the concentration ranges to, to come up with. I know Thomas and Autumn, you guys have done instrument validations when we get a new instrument in. Do you want to take us through that process of how you sort of, you know, determine the range and the detection limits and all the data you had to collect for that? Yeah, we're actually doing that right now. We got a, a newer instrument from Spectro. And the nice thing about it is it's got three different modes. So we're actually assessing detection limits on each of the modes to see what will work best. And um, if the linear range is different between radial, axial, and then this dual side-on interface, which is pretty pretty exciting to use. But we're running like 0 0.1, 1, 10, 100, and even 1,000. And we're doing that for every element singly, seeing what the linear range is, but also how low the detection limit is towards that zero blank. So we do that for every element, each mode. We compile that data in, in Excel. We don't do that in the software. Make sure there's no interferences, center the peaks, check the background points. Very robust library. But when we go back and do method development on individual basis, we'll at least know where the interferences are. We'll be able to see how low we can go. Like I said, we're still working through some of these. So some lines are better than we expected, especially with that dual side on. We're very excited about that. It's basically axial level detection limits in radial mode. So it's very exciting. That's awesome. Brian, I know you've done a lot of work on ICP mass spec. Any tips on, you know, when people go to calculate their detection limits on ICP mass spec? Yeah, my own experience in, has been that I would calculate the, set, the uh, detection limits pretty much for each analytical run. And that's not really possible kind of following this classical approach that Paul has spelled out because that approach that, that Paul describes in the guide is asking you to do a lot of upfront work using a range of concentrations and essentially generate a sensitivity curve. And once you actually get into the, you know, the mechanics of measuring different sample types, I think that my own experiences were that I started really to move away from that kind of ideal detection limit scenario that Paul's method would lead you to. And I would consider that to be the instrument detection limit and really move into what is the method detection limit. And my own experiences with mass spec, the samples required a lot of concentration or digestion. So there was a lot of sample preparation involved. And so I would actually use the method blank and these method blank data are what uh, would be used to construct the detection and quantification limits. And so I think that really is a distinction that's pretty important for uh, the viewing audience is that your method detection limits should be higher than your instrument detection limits. And one of the nice things about method detection limits is that if you use a slightly different approach where you're calculating these based upon the standard deviation of your blank values, you can come up with uh, method detection limits that are specific for that analytical run. And when I was reporting data to the end users, I found that to be super helpful because that will change depending upon your digestion uh, method, the sample type and things of that nature. 
So I would be able to have really good conversations with the end user and say, okay, for your particular sample types and using this particular sample preparation method, the detection limits are this. And please understand that if we move to a different sample type or a different digestion method for the samples, these will be different. And it's just a really good opportunity to kind of help educate the end user who's consuming the data about how these can change with time. And Brian, when you're talking about method blanks, you're actually talking about a blank that you go through a process on. You're not talking about a matrix blank, are you? No, that's exactly right, Thomas. You have some type of sample preparation method and you create a, uh, you run your blank solutions through that entire process, whether it's a closed vessel digestion, there could be multiple evaporation steps, it could be pre-concentration, and you really treat it like a sample. And you run it through that, and then at the end of the day, when you get the data back, to me, that was the best estimate of the true detection limit for the instrument for that sample type in that given day. Yeah, and that's certainly not as good as that instrument detection limit they, they report, huh? No, not even close. I always love the instrument detection limits that you see published by manufacturers and in the literature. I was never able to really achieve them, but I felt that it gave me an idea of what the machine could do in an ideal situation. I was more concerned about what the machine was actually reporting on the day I ran the analyses. Yeah. Another good way that I've used before when I'm trying to see, is this actually my detection limit, is you can spike those method blanks with the amount of the analyte close to the detection limit, maybe a little bit above it, to see if it's actually recoverable and if you're actually able to see that amount. So that's a good way if you want to confirm what detection limits you're calculating too. Yeah, and that's a fantastic point, Autumn. For a slightly different reason, I would follow that same process, but I wouldn't be spiking in necessarily single elements and trying to figure out what the detection or quantification limit was. I was more concerned about the recovery for the sample preparation. So one thing that was really kind of simple and helpful is I would take my calibration standards for the ICP MS analyses, and I would run those through the sample preparation method just as if they were an unknown sample. And then at the end of the day, you can compare that during the run to a a freshly prepared set of calibration standards. And you really find out quickly if your sample preparation method is appropriate or if you have some issues with recovery or loss of some of your analytes. Awesome. Great. Well, if anyone has not had a chance to, you know, take a look at the ICP operations guide, this is definitely this part of the guide where I'd recommend it. Paul put in a lot of great spectra in there, so it doesn't really, you know, can't go through the airwaves quite as well as if you visit the website and take a look at it. But Paul also mentioned in this chapter, he started to talk a little bit about method validation. And I thought this might be a good opportunity for us to start talking about the various steps of method validation. This is something we get a lot of questions on and tech support. A lot of questions when people come to our ICP conferences, one of the big topics is always method validation. So we have, you know, a, a series of steps that we you know, like to try to guide people through. The first one being specificity and, you know, just how do you make sure that your results are not biased by interferences? I'll toss that over to the group. You know, we've talked about interferences before, but in terms of method validation, what would you guys recommend for specificity? Gosh, always get every line you can possibly look at. This is definitely a flaw with certain instruments that require you to pre-input which lines you're looking at, because if you don't look at that line, you got to rerun your sample. So the ones that can do full spectra are very helpful with validation activities because if you don't have anything that matches, you're going to try again. That's a good point, Thomas. One of the things that I found interesting is that the instrument software, not only might 
it kind of leads you to choosing a wavelength or mass that may not be the most appropriate is that some of the recommended masses or wavelengths in my own experience were not really ever the best choice. And it seemed that they were based mainly upon the most sensitive line or the uh, most abundant mass. And so I would just caution the audience, take that with a grain of salt. If the software recommends a wavelength or a mass, I mean, it certainly might be appropriate, but my own experience was to kind of disregard that. And I would say, follow Thomas's advice, measure every possible wavelength and mass that you can, because that will help you identify any issues you might observe later. But yeah, you'll you'll see that a lot more of them will agree than you expect. And that just gives you way more confidence in the data that you've collected. Yeah. And on top of interferences, having multiple wavelengths with different sensitivities can help with your range too. Because if you're running samples at low levels and higher levels, that could help you with any over range issues with the high concentrations and also being able to detect really low levels that you're looking for. Yeah, that's also true when you've got axial and radial mode on the same instrument. If it lets you do both in simultaneous mode or even back-to-back with the sample run, you can get those much higher ranges with radial mode that you can't get with axial because, you know, all of a sudden you over range and your peak, as we say here, looks like Batman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, and that's great. And if anyone listening to this has any questions about potential interferences, always feel free to reach out to us. Info at Inorganic Ventures will take you to our tech support line. We'll be happy to answer any questions. Also, take a look at our technical videos. Thomas actually answered a great question on our last webinar about a copper interference and using a line that uh, may not be, you know, suitable because of a hydroxide interference, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We'll talk about the next two maybe together. So back to method validation, accuracy and precision often get paired together. So I'll toss this out to the group. Who wants to sort of speak on accuracy and precision? So... Accuracy, this is just making sure that you're getting the accurate results. And so one of the main things that you want to always have is a comparison to a known value. So if there's a reference material for the sample type that you're looking at, you want to make sure that you have purchased that and are able to get the correct values for all the analytes that you're looking for. And it really is important that the sample type is representative of your sample. So if you're looking at a specific plant type analyzing trace metallic impurities in the leaf. If there's a reference material available for that specific plant, that's ideal because it's going to contain all of the components and the matrix that you're looking for, as well as any interferences. Yeah, I have to plus Autumn's comment in that regard. The availability of real-world certified reference materials has increased significantly in you know the years that I've been working with these techniques, and so it really is a huge benefit if you can find something that is similar to your sample types of your unknowns, because that really gives you a lot of confidence that the whole part, you know, every step in your entire analytical process, whether it's from sample preparation to the final data is generating the accurate results that you're looking for. And there are a number of online resources um, where data for these real-world CRMs have been compiled uh, across multiple analytical methods. And that also gives you a really good idea of just how robust they are for different types of analytical methods. And so spot on, if you can find a CRM that matches, great. But even if you can't find one that's an exact match for your sample, try to find one that's close because they're always good checks. Are you doing things appropriately? 
And it gives you the sense of confidence that you're generating the most accurate data possible. Great. And in terms of precision, this is something, you know, that we have done in the past when we've had to validate new methods. It's always good to put it through, you know, does the same method that you're creating, does it work on multiple instruments? Does it work when, you know, not just the main technician is preparing the standards and the samples? Can you grab another technician and make sure that it works when they prepare everything? Maybe there's small differences in technique, you know, that can affect the precision of your results. And we've definitely seen that in our lab from time to time. It's just, you know, Sometimes instruments or people have a slightly different way of doing things. And it's always good to sort of, if you're developing a method, you want to validate it, you're checking it against multiple, as multiple scenarios as you can to make sure it's going to remain accurate over, over your analysis. Yeah. So Mike, do you trust the data that you generate on Mondays and Fridays? You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Only when the, the sun is in the right position and the stars and the moon align. <laughs> All right. Up next on that on this list of method validation topics is uh, we already talked about limit of detection quite a bit, but limit of quantification. So Thomas, I want to kick this one over to you. I know that you talk about this a lot in your trace metal and purity um, presentations. Yeah, limit of quantification is something we don't deal with much here at IV because we care about chasing the detection limits for your standards. I want to tell you if something's there, we're going to let you know about it. But a limit of quantification is like how sure can you quantify it on a you know reasonable basis. So a detection limit is three times the standard deviation of the blanks. Limit of quantification is 10 times that. So it's a much higher threshold to, to say, yes, this is present. So if you're looking at a peak and it's a little bump on the spectra, that's a detection limit. It's got to be a much, much bigger peak. So you've got good confidence. That's a strong signal. It rises above the level of the noise and it's reproducible. So as you take repeated measurements, it shows up every time. Thomas, I have a question regarding that quantification limit. Do you find that when you're really close to the quantification limit, that your precision is not quite as good as you would like? And that as you get further away from the quantification limit, the analyses tend to be more precise? Um, not really sure. I mean, as you as you get a higher signal, I mean, yeah, you're going to get more reproducible peak there. But if it's kind of right at that level, I would say you got to ch chase those RSDs. Exactly. Yeah. That's my experience as well. When you're down close to that quantification limit, just be cautious. Yeah. And I would say it really does depend on the, the two instruments. So with mass spec, we kind of say it's there if it's got an RSD of 20 or lower, which is really high. Um, but on mass spec, that's really what you expect to see. Um, on OES, it's, it's much lower though. Something below two or two or one for an RSD is what I would say is reasonable. Exactly. Yeah, and, and the last couple points on this method validation, um, we've already spoken about linearity, but robustness is another good one, especially when folks are running unknown samples. So there might be small differences in the samples. I know, Thomas, you ran into this when you developed the method that we use to test our customs, right? Because some things could be in nitric acid matrices and some things can be in HCL acid matrices, right? Yeah, so tr traditionally we, we changed our method up. We used to be exclusively in HCL, which gave us problems with silver. It gave us some problems with thallium, a couple others. So we wanted to get away from that, but we really wanted to increase the range. So increase to increase the range, we can't go much beyond 1 ppm because HF will start precipitating all the rare earths. <laughs> so we split our standards up with different matrices. So we did test this different elements with HCL versus nitric. And I mean, with our calibration curve, we weren't seeing much of a difference. We've always preached here that you got to matrix match everything to get the best results. 
And we're doing screening tests where we're really just checking to see if we really messed up making a custom blend. The matrix was a little less in, of an, in importance. So 5% nitric, 5% HDL, they looked the same on the signal output. So that's kind of where robustness comes in. You still get the same result, even though you prepped it in the wrong acid. Exactly. Awesome. Well, I think this closes out this topic, unless anyone else had anything, any final points they wanted to throw in? Yeah, I would say with detection limits, I've seen some issues with washout. So you got to be very careful with that. So I've done some studies where we want to show how well mercury works. We maybe run 10 blanks and the number still goes down. So what is that true detection limit? Well, you got to wait for it to be completely clean to really assess that. So sometimes you really got to clean your system, change out tubing, make sure everything is as clean as possible if you want that ideal detection limit. Otherwise, you're really going to be throwing a monkey wrench into your study. So watch out for that. The sticky elements will lead you astray at first if you're not paying attention. Got to look for the drift. Yeah, I think when you're doing your method development too, it'd be a good idea to try and run like your worst case scenario, your highest total dissolved solids or your highest matrix that you're going to expect to maybe have washout issues and then run some blanks after that to make sure that everything is set up to where it's going to wash out before your next sample. Yep, and don't do it right after you were in your tuning solution. You wonder why indium's there. Ooh, didn't wait long enough to clean the system. That's happened many times. Perfect. Well, we hope that you found this conversation helpful. If you have any questions, please contact us at ivignite at innergangventures.com. Ignite membership provides you with unlimited access to our video courses, downloadable resources, community forums, and so much more. Join us next week as we cover Chapter 8 of the ICP Operations Guide, where our team will discuss the several types of spectral interferences and how to avoid and correct for those. We hope you join us then and have a fantastic holiday season.